Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I'm talking to Ronnie Robinson, eating disorder recovery coach, author, freelance writer, and public speaker. Ronnie has 15 years recovered from 30 years of binge eating and compulsive eating, starting at the tender age of nine years old. Ronnie also experienced an eight-year abusive relationship while struggling with an eating disorder. And she has written a book about the entire journey called Out of the Pantry, A Disordered Eating Journey, which came out in 2020. And the book's purpose is to help support her own recovery journey going forward and to act as a helping hand to reach, as she calls it, back into the fire and to help pull others out. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today to hear all about Ronnie's healing journey with the ups and downs of this and to explore more about the valuable coaching work she is doing with her clients today. Let's get to the conversation. Hi, Ronnie. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Harriet. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Ah, oh, great. So, Ronnie, can I firstly get you to introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Sure, sure. So, my name is Ronnie Robinson. I am an author. I'm an eating disorder recovery coach. I'm a writer. I'm a mom. I'm an introvert. I'm a menopausal spin instructor. <laughs> Yeah, I think that probably explains, that captures a lot of what my life is like. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Ronnie. And I'm intrigued, Ronnie, on your website, you're talking about being a failed cat fosterer or something. Like, can you you elaborate, please? (laughs) A foster, a foster fail cat owner. We fostered a cat almost two summers ago, and it was just for a foster, just to, you know, sort of serve a a purpose of helping to acclimate the cat and learn about it. And well, I fell in love with him and he's sitting on the couch right next to me right now. <laughs> oh, oh, so that's a lovely like end story then, isn't it? So yeah. Thinking, yeah. Oh, so it's yeah. <laughs> like, well, you're wondering what the heck that meant. Yeah. It's called it, you know, like just the <laughs> thing to say you're fostering, but it's a foster fail because you're supposed to give the cat back. And then, you know, yeah. the cat's supposed to go to a home. So I failed and I kept them for myself. <laughs> oh, they're lovely. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> that was very sure, sure. <laughs> and I just realized I forgot to say one very important thing in my little bio about myself is that I am 15 years recovered from 30 years of binge eating, compulsive overeating and emotional eating. So yeah, a little, little bit of important information I forgot to give there. Mm, yeah, no, gosh, well, that's incredible. So I guess that's a great place to start, actually, Ronnie. Could you <laughs> could you take us back a little bit, please, and just talk us through your story? Sure, sure. So I think this goes back to about when I was around nine years old. My earliest thought of in regard to food was when my mother started hiding cookies from me. It was my job on Fridays. She would work with my parents, work full time, and I was a, a called a latchkey kid. I don't know if they use that term in the UK, but it mm. basically means you have you have the key to your home and your parents aren't around and you come home from school and you let yourself in and you know one of your parents isn't there to greet you. So my job was to help my mom with the groceries. She she went to the market every Friday after work 
and she would come home and I would help empty the bags. And of course, I would always see what was in there. And so say that there was a package of cookies, which I believe you guys call biscuits. I would take them out of the bag and I'd think to myself, ooh, mom got chocolate chip. And the next day I would go to look for them and they were nowhere to be found. And this went on for a long time. And I tried to ask my mother about it and she sort of just waved it off and said, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. So that ended up with me. I luckily or unluckily for me, we lived around the corner from a large shopping center. And in those days, when you were eight, nine years old, it was okay to just walk around the corner to a large supermarket, not like the scare we all have now, or at least in the United States. Yeah, I would buy like a half gallon of ice cream and come home. And since I was home by myself, I would eat the whole thing in one sitting. And then, you know, a day or two later, I would go and buy a rather large bag of candy and I would eat the entire bag. And there was no emotion attached to it at that time. It was just something I wanted to do. I can't even explain where it came from. It was just this idea I had. And yeah, that would be great. And, you know, that kind of continued. You know, I was, you know, years later, I started babysitting. And then that was like, wow, even more food than my mom kept in the house. And then, you know, I started working. And I, when I was 16 or 17, I worked in a, had a car and I worked in a fast food restaurant and would just stand over the French fry bin and just eat them and eat them and eat the French fries. Like, it was my job. Yeah, it just continued really for most of my life until I was 40. And of course, the older I got, the more food was accessible. And I would drive around and go through fast food drive throughs or, you know, stop at a market or, or really anything, a donut place, an ice cream place, and just get huge amounts of food and eat until I was absolutely beyond stuffed. I remember I, I used to feel like, my skin was on too tight. I was growing out of my clothes at a quick and rapid rate. Yeah, I got married to an awful, awful human being. And it turned out, I learned years later that I was just perpetuating what I saw in my house. This man would, he was very controlling and very manipulating. And he did a lot of gaslighting to me. It got to a point where I had to account for where I was all the time. I didn't get to see my friends very much because he was afraid if I was with a friend who didn't have a boyfriend who wasn't married, that they were looking for a boyfriend and that I in turn, of course, would be looking to. He, oh my goodness, he once, um, we were arguing and which was a very common thing in our relationship. And then I subsequently married him like an idiot in our home. He once pushed me against the wall and then shoved me up a wall while screaming in my face on our honeymoon, which was just a trip to Florida. We were driving somewhere and got into a discussion that he didn't want to talk about. So he pulled over and he had me get out of the car on a road in Florida. And I live in Pennsylvania. So it was this other state, this other place, and we were supposed to be on our honeymoon. And of course, I thought this was all my fault. And what did I do wrong? And I would standing on the side of the road crying which I did a lot of crying throughout a relationship because I always wondered, is this normal? Should this be like this? And if I ever got to the point of wanting to break up with him, he would say, oh, Ronnie, you're just so sensitive and you cry too easily and nobody's going to love you like I do. And, you know, unfortunately, I had 
zero self-esteem and zero self-confidence. And he did nothing to help me with that. And yeah, it was just a really unhappy time in my life. And it was, you know, like the kind of like, you know, the best fun years of your life when you're that young from age like 19 to 27, I was with him. I feel like I missed my 20s because, you know, I just, you know, even like I turned 21, which in the United States is a big deal. You know, you get to, you're legal to have your first drink. He wouldn't let me go out with my friends that night because he was a year younger and he couldn't get a drink. So that wasn't fair to him. So I couldn't celebrate my 21st birthday with my friends. So yeah, I could go on and on about that. But what it came down to what I learned in therapy was that I was, like I said, perpetuating what I saw in my own home, which was a domineering, unreasonable, impossible husband with a meek wife who could never had the opportunity to speak up for herself because she was always sort of shoved down and not able to. Anyway, the only good thing about him was that he was a great eating buddy. He also loved to, we would call it pigging out, you know, at the time. Anyway, so I did finally leave him. And then within a month, went on a blind date with this amazing guy who I'm still married to 25 (laughs) years later. In fact, two nights ago was the 28 year anniversary of our blind date. Yeah, right. And that's funny. (laughs) And we have two healthy, beautiful children and a life that I honestly could have never even dreamed of that, you know, growing up in my home as I did, I never even envisioned that my life could be any more than two parents yelling at each other, you know, and to be laughing and smiling and having discussions and my husband not being a hothead and I'm not a hothead. It's just, yeah, it's just so nice. But even though I was so happy and have been so happy all this time, I still binge for the first 10 years of our lives together in secret and So just goes to show you that even though life could be really, really great for me, I still had this compulsion, this driving need to fill my face. It was like this switch that went on and I became, you know, it was like a snowball then rolling down the hill. There was no stopping me. I just got in whatever mode that was and there just wasn't enough food to satisfy me. And I had no idea about my hunger cues. I had no idea about fullness. It was just all about my life was what can I eat? Where will I get it from? Where am I going to eat it? How will I get it? Where am I going to go first? I mean, I would make, I would sit there and make a list of all the places I would go, the bakery, the market, the ice cream store, the this, the that, and just plan my day. And it was just all about me you know, getting food in my mouth. And yeah, I would feel full and I love to, have, well, I in hindsight, I would not have liked to have been able to throw it up, but I never could. So I stopped trying it after like one or two attempts, which in hindsight, I know is probably a really good thing. But yeah, it was just this awful thing that I always had going. And what was also really sad was the food took the place of relationships with friends and so forth. I mean, we would go to events or parties or people's houses or away somewhere. And I would just have this, you know, kind of perfunctory, hi, how are you with a friend? And then I would just be off to find the food, which was horrible because I never really got to know my friends, you know, who I came, you know, I came to find with my husband, not my earlier friends, but I Mm -hmm. I didn't get to know them. They didn't get to know me because all I was interested in was the food. And I would always come up with some excuse to 
walk away from them and pretend to go look for somebody else. But in fact, I was just strategizing to get to, you know, the food table and mainly the desserts. I don't mean I was trying to eat celery or lettuce or carrots. I mean, I was looking for the, <laughs> the, carbohydrates, the carbohydrates and the sugar, you know, and the salt. So yeah. And then one night I was, like I said, I was close to 40 years old and my husband was out and my kids were sleeping. They were small. And I heard the words compulsive overeater on television. And whether I had heard those two words before and just, you know, it didn't hit me or this particular time I was open to it, I heard it and I compulsive overeater and I thought, huh. And I walked over to my laptop and I started Googling and very, one of the very first sites that came up was Overeaters Anonymous. And so I clicked on it and very prominently said, are you one of us? And it said, do you do this with food? Have you done that with food? Do you often do this? Have you often done that? And I was like, oh my goodness. There were 15 to 20 questions and I answered yes to almost all of them. And I was like dumbfounded. I couldn't believe that there was a website devoted to it. And I thought, oh, one person made a website, you know, like <laughs> it just, right? I mean, this was like so... This was such a secret to me and I never heard anybody else say anything about it. I mean, I had heard about anorexia and I heard about bulimia, but I, so I, I just never in a million years dreamed that this was a thing, that this was an eating disorder. I thought it was just me. And I thought, oh, well, a person made a website. So there's one other person. This is, you know, this is interesting, right? You know, and then I came to, you know, you start going down the rabbit hole on Google and, you know, it turns out it's not just me. And this was just a revelation on the one hand. And I just, I remember started crying and crying because on the one hand, I was so, I guess, relieved that this was actually a thing and that I could get better, that people recover from it. But on the other hand, I was so mortified. I learned that, you know, unfortunately there was such a stigma I'm not sure if it's different in the UK or not, but such a stigma, it you know, turns out that an eating disorder is a mental health issue. And I was like, mm. oh my goodness, I have a mental health issue. Again, the stigma was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so embarrassed. So it was just very, very emotional. A lot of tears you know, that had been buried inside me that I had no idea were there. And I, I remember since, you know, I've been a writer since I was about 18 and so it comes very easily and naturally for me to want to express myself in my writing. It's just easier to get it out of my brain that way. And I remember staying up that night and typing a letter to my husband, just sort of explaining what I had just done. You know, hey, I just heard this on TV and I just Googled, you know, mm -hmm. Overeaters Anonymous. And I remember thinking, wow, he's just going to be like, well, Ronnie, it was great being with you, but I'm taking the kids and we're out of here. <laughs> like you have mm -hmm. fun dealing with it. Fortunately, he, of course, the loving, you know, person that he is, he was, you know, held me close and hugged me and told me how much he loved me and how much he would help me. So I was really lucky with that. And so basically with all that research I did that night, I kind of had a, like a four prong attack that I took on recovering. The first thing was therapy. And I know Overeaters Anonymous doesn't necessarily tell you to get therapy. They want you to, you know, go to the meetings and follow, you know, and do the 12 steps and sort of 
give your will for the sugar and the carbs or flour or what have you to your higher power. And while I thought I loved Overeaters Anonymous because for the camaraderie of it and to the community, I should say, and to, you know, be at a meeting and look around and see people of all shapes and sizes and, you know, men, women, tall, short, thin, heavy, mm-hmm. you know, not a lot of money, wealthy. And I it was like the only place I felt like I was home. I was like, these people get me, right? Mm-hmm. Every, we all get each other, which is, you know, anybody who's a, you know, quote unquote, normal eater, they have no idea what it's like to be, you know, feel like your brain's been overhauled by something and you can't control yourself and just want to eat. So it was really nice for that. But I personally, for me, when I know people love OA, that wasn't a good road for me. I felt that therapy was, I wanted to get to the root of where this desire Mm -hmm. for food came from. And I wanted to work through it. And I wanted to be done with this. I didn't want to have to pray to my higher power multiple times a day to alleviate the need for food. I just wanted this thing gone. Mm -hmm. I also started reading a lot of books, you know, written by, you know, like memoirs and just other things about eating disorders, you know, to get hope and find out what happened to other people and how they recovered. And then probably about six months later, I started an anonymous blog. Again, Mm -hmm. just my writing background, which I could, you know, equate to somebody journaling, right? I just happened to do it more out loud online, but it was anonymous and it was called Confessions of a Compulsive Overeater, which is now defunct at this point. But yeah, I would just go on there and have these, you know, as I was going through therapy and reading these books and just, it was just a place for me to like I said, like kind of have these like brain dumps and put all my kooky things that I did out there, things that I did with food and my planning and this, that, and the other. And slowly, you know, people started to follow me and I found other people to follow. And that was a wonderful community as well. And yeah, so recovery wasn't linear by any stretch. You know, you kind of take a step forward and two steps back and, you know, the road is very winding, but yeah, I've been, I feel fully recovered now for very long time, 15 years fully, you know, to be for the whole process, but it probably took maybe a year or so to be to the point Mm. where I did not have, and when I say fully recovered for me, I mean, say no eating disordered thoughts and no eating disordered behaviors. Yeah. So yeah, it's just my life changed so much and my friendships are so much deeper and it's just so different to live a life about people and passions Mm -hmm. than, you know, being solely focused, not solely. I mean, look, I had husband and children who I loved and was very and was present for them. But other than that, yeah, it was just food, food, food. And now a quick advertisement break. Are you a burned out high achieving woman who's frustrated that emotional eating, weight gain and exhaustion are self-sabotaging your work and life? You're tired, fatigued, brain fogged, your cravings are through the roof and you feel so insecure in your body and that's impacting the way you show up in your business, career and life. Who could you be if you actually addressed your emotional eating struggles, built food freedom and made peace with your body? Free, that's what. Get support to fully overcome emotional eating, address hormone and gut issues and build the body confidence and connection you've always desired. If you're ready to address each piece, be sure to check out Amber Romagnac, emotional eating, digestive and hormone expert with nine years of experience, helping over 1,500 women with support on all of the above without diets, 
without restriction or quick fixes. She will do a full health assessment and help you get to the root of your symptoms with hormone testing, gut health, and of course, support to help your body come back to balance with your mind and soul. Visit amberapproved.ca to book a 30-minute body freedom call or check out the No Sugar Coating podcast today to learn more about the connections between our relationship with food, mindset and our health and how it impacts the way we show up in all areas of our lives. That's kind of it, I think. (laughs) Yeah, no, gosh, well, thank you so much for sharing, Ronnie. It's definitely been quite a journey, hasn't it? And um, Oh, my goodness, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, so when you're sort of reflecting back on sort of like, you know, early home life and then obviously like, you know, that really difficult relationship in your 20s, do you sort of look back and see like the binge eating, the compulsive eating, was it a sort of life raft or a sort of coping strategy to help you through those difficult times? Like, do you kind of view it in that way? For sure. That played a huge role in it. And and forgive me, I didn't mention this, the part of recovery that was the most impactful for me was the fact that what I learned was with my therapist was really, really going through my childhood. And what I thought was normal to me, right, because that was my life. And I knew nothing other than that, that my parents were not emotionally there for me, they weren't emotionally supportive at all. Besides my mother hiding food, and not talking to me about it. Hey, Ronnie, I think you're gaining weight or, Hey, Ronnie, this is really bad for your teeth or something. There was no explanation. And it just, you know, it wasn't the kind of household where, you know, if I came home sad, my, either of my parents would say, Oh, Ronnie, what's wrong. You don't look like yourself today. Let's sit down and talk about this. Nothing whatsoever. We, nothing was family oriented in our house. There was no closeness. I have a brother who's four and a half years older and we were never close. It was never fostered. We never did anything as a family. Yeah. So that was normal to me. Right. And I didn't know I wasn't getting the emotional support Mm -hmm. that I needed and that they were in effect absent in a sense, right? They were physically present, but emotionally absent. And even quite dismissive, actually. I mean, there were times where I, I was an athlete my whole life, a tomboy, and I still am. And I've had broken bones. And, you know, my mother would say, oh, that's fine. You know, and, you know, a few days later, mom still really hurts and it's swollen. All right, let's take you to the doctor. Oh, it's broken. So, you know, it's very mm-hmm. much dismissed if, you know, I had, you know, feelings or, you know, just any of my needs. And that's just another silly thing. I remember... I had a haircut appointment and I had a, I told my mom that my stomach ached and she just was like, you don't want to go because I want your hair to be short and you just don't want your haircut. I said, no, mom, I really feel sick. And sure enough, we're at the hairdresser and I threw up. So like she Mm. just, everything was dismissed. Yeah. So with all that being said, what I learned in therapy was that this was the case that my parents were absent for me emotionally, you know, and dismissive and that my eating disorder was, you know, as a child, the only kind of coping mechanism that you can grab onto. I mean, you know, having an eating disorder is in my mind, like any kind of addiction, right? It could have been a drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling, shopping, sex. There's so many, you know, insert addiction, you know, here for coping. But as a child, you know, food is kind of the most available thing that you can have and, you know, pretty easy to sneak and so forth. And I, of course, became like a ninja 
uh, you know, sneaking food and all that. Yeah. So because I wasn't, so while parts of it were for emotions, probably primarily with when I was with my ex and I would be sad and frustrated and so hurt that I would turn to food. A lot of it actually really didn't have to do with emotion. It was just this void. And again, this is all later Mm -hmm. that I, you know, in therapy, I learned this and later, but it was just this void that I had. My emotional needs were not being met. And I was Mm -hmm. filling that void unbeknownst to me, right? But um, Mm. filling the, trying to, attempting to fill the void with a lot of food. And I had no control over when that would happen or when that would strike. And it happened very, very frequently. So it Mm. wasn't all about emotion, but that certainly did have its moments. Mm, Sure. You know, thank you for explaining that because I'm sure so many of the listeners will relate to this. And obviously then when you sort of met your now husband and you were in the sort of supportive relationship and, you know, in a very different place, I guess there was the opportunity there for you to, you know, hopefully for the for the first time in a long time to have your emotional needs more fully met. But I guess yes. that was still, it's probably still a very unfamiliar place, wasn't yes. it? Really like, yeah, not knowing how to get those oh, needs met. Yeah, exactly. No, and it's funny because, I remember when I we were dating and, you know, going out, you know, everybody's sort of on their best behavior, right? Because you want to look, you know, <laughs> do your best, right? And show the best parts of your personality. And I remember thinking, okay, well, when is the other shoe going to fall on this guy? Because nobody can really be this nice. Nobody can be this way. And, you know, 28 years later, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to fall. You know, it's just, <laughs> I was just suspect, right? Because I never knew anybody in my, you know, I'm, there was no prominent male in my life who was this nice, you know, and good to me and supportive of me. It was like, okay, this can't be real, especially for me, you know, because I don't deserve this. What another thing, you know, part of therapy was not only what the lack of emotional support and the dismissiveness led to was I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving of love. I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. Those are the messages that I internalized from not getting the emotional support that I needed. So to have somebody who was being so nice to me all the time and so supportive and loving was like, I don't deserve this. And what's, I'm not worthy of this. And when is this is going to have, I'm sure this is going to stop soon because it can't be this good. Like it it just can't Mm. be. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Right. Right. And yeah. So I feel just very blessed and very fortunate that, and I, you know what, and sometimes I think maybe I had to go through all that horrible stuff to, you know, the horrible ex to get to somebody who I would appreciate so much. Yeah, no, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like looking back in hindsight, it's probably much easier to say mm-hmm. that, but I'm, I'm sure you didn't feel that at the time. Oh, um, absolutely. Right, right. <laughs> so Ronnie as well, because I think I know so many, I think of my own clients and the listeners will relate to this, that, you know, in a way, when we haven't had our emotional needs met, we're left with these feelings of not being worthy or undeserving. And it's very feeling very mistrusting, aren't you, when you do come across someone who can give you maybe more of those things. So I know this is a real process and it's, you know, individual for each person, but how did you really begin to turn that around to begin to feel actually that you were someone who was worthy and deserving and that you could sort of let that in, in and, you know, not sort of deflect it or avoid it or mistrust it anymore? Right. Yeah, I guess it just took some time and it did take the therapy to learn that it wasn't me. You know, mm. I, I think back that it wasn't me. It wasn't my fault 
that was really big. I remember thinking that, you know, I had my children, they were young and I thought, oh my goodness, I love these kids so much. I want to gobble them up. I Mm -hmm. want them under, you know, I want them under my skin. I just love them. And I, you know, and I still, they're 20 and 23 and I still feel that way. And I remember thinking, what was wrong with me that my mom didn't think of me this way? Why didn't my mom love me this hard? What was wrong with me? Right. Because what else could it be? Because, you know, when you're little, your parents are not that they're perfect, but that's what you know. And they're adults and they know what they're doing and they're right, you know. So, what's wrong with me that my mom and dad, but primarily my mother, I think, didn't love me like that? And, you know, when I kind of realized and learned and that it it was not me. It had nothing to do with me at all. It was them. And they were only capable of so much. They, Mm. they were not wired to be loving and emotionally supportive people, not, they weren't loving. They were kind of dysfunctional as individuals and then together as a couple as well. So yeah. And none of that was my fault. And none of that meant I was unlovable. And as I began to process that, And that along with the love of my husband and, you know, unconditional love of my children, Mm -hmm. I began to realize that, yeah, I am lovable and I am worthy and I am enough. And yeah, I still have some lingering things here and there, but Mm -hmm. nothing that affects me in any kind of large way or, and, you know, certainly doesn't have me going to any coping mechanism, but, you know, sometimes some things are a little hard to break. So once in a while, a little bit of that breaks through, but yeah, for the most part, I feel I feel very blessed and I'm very content and very happy, in fact. And I know that I do, you know, bring something to the table, so to speak. I bring a lot of things to the table. So yeah, it took some time, but it definitely happened. And yeah, I just feel so much better about myself than I used to. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it's just quite powerful to hear you sort of saying out loud as well that realizing that it wasn't your fault because as children when we don't get our needs met we do just blame ourselves don't we like you know and that's not often a kind of conscious process but as a child you just do don't you but beginning to like sort of separate out from that be able to take a step back and view it differently and realizing like you said in a way I guess your parents were quite dysfunctional weren't they they're probably doing the best they could at the time with the tools they had but they weren't able to meet your needs and that wasn't your fault yeah right right yeah yeah and with that then you know with processing that then I could accept compliments and I could accept nice things people said about me like you said instead of deflecting them and so forth Mm. So Ronnie, tell us a little bit about your book that you wrote in the pandemic. Is that right? Yes, yes, I did. (laughs) I've been writing it off and on for a few years. And finally, interestingly, when the pandemic hit in March of 2020 is gave me kind of the opportunity when, you know, the world closed down to just really kind of buckle down and really focus and finishing it. So in March is when that kind of, you know, the pandemic happened and when I sort of put my, you know, my nose to the grindstone, so to speak. And in August is when the book was published. And the book was, I know I was kind of flirting with the idea of writing a book for a while. And then, like I said, it took maybe around the eight year mark is when I started to dabble in it. And I think I waited a while because I wanted to be sure that I was recovered. I didn't feel comfortable, I don't think you know, maybe at four years, I didn't want to, you know, 
talk about it and write about it and then relapse and go exactly back to the person I was. I didn't want to feel like a fraud. And that was just my own personal thing. I mean, some people at two years feel like they're totally, you know, that they could shout it from the rooftops. But I just, that just didn't sit well with me. So around eight years recovered is when I started writing. And I really just wanted to write a memoir. And I didn't even know if anybody would even read it. But I just, it was almost like the cathartic exercise for me to just get it all out of my system and to hopefully, I think my main reason was I wanted to provide hope to others. I didn't know who the heck was going to read it. But even if one person read it and it helped them to get on the road to recovery and to not hear their ed, you know, their ED mm-hmm. voice anymore, then, you know, that was a win. And I found an editor and proofreader, you know, and all the, you know, got all my ducks in a row. And the editor really helped me pull out a lot of memories that I had, you know, since pushed away or long forgotten about to help me you know, have content, more content for the book and not have it just be me trying to say something in 20 pages and, you know, just help me really explore things and how they made me feel and what it felt like in that moment. So that was also, that was a little bit difficult, but also a very good thing. And yeah, just overall, the memoir was to just help pay my recovery forward so that others, I read books by, I read other memoirs that helped me to recover. You know, I feel like every little thing that resonates is just a little bit of healing, right? Like just any Mm -hmm. little bit is any little nugget, anything that you go, Oh my gosh, I did what this person did, or that's yes, that's how I feel. Like that is just a little bit of healing, a little bit power that Ed is losing and that you're gaining. And that all those little pieces and little nuggets kind of fit together and just work to this giant puzzle of, you know, recovering. So yeah, so that was just my goal to just you know, to really pay it forward. You know, I felt I'm so blessed and so lucky to be recovered. And if I could kind of, you know, put my arm, reach back into the fire for those others who are still struggling and, and just help to pull them out, you know, just how great that that would be. Mm, yeah, no, very inspiring. And Ronnie, where can people oh. get your book? Is it on Amazon or like where, where's the best place for people to find it? Yeah, it's on Amazon. It's on paperback. It's on Kindle. It's on audiobook that I recorded last summer, which was an interesting experience. <laughs> and it's also at Barnes and Noble, also an ebook and a paperback as well. No, brilliant. And can you just clarify? I'll put it in the show notes as well. But can you just clarify the name of your book as well for anyone that's listening and wants to just write it down? Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's called Out of the Pantry: A Disordered Eating Journey. Okay, no, lovely. So Ronnie, am I right? Are you also doing eating disorder recovery coaching now? I am. I am. I have been doing that for a while, sort of unofficially for some time and then officially. But yeah, that has been, it has and remains every day, such a rewarding, rewarding job, you know, to in my, you know, being over 15 and starting a business, you know, officially starting a business and reaching out to people and people reaching out to me and to be able to, you know, take all this horrible, horrible experience that I had for 30 years. And then all that I, you know, learned and went through in recovery and being able to put that all to good use and to help others is, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know how many other synonyms there are to the word rewarding, but that just really sums it up. And Mm -hmm. also it, you know, my parents, never ever 
gave. My parents were takers. They were always looking for, they didn't have a ton of money, so they're always looking for the free this and the free that, but they didn't give of themselves. They didn't give of their time. And for me to now be able to give and give back just feels all that more special. I mean, I knew that I didn't want to be like them when I grew up. And I wanted, I mean, in fact, if anything that my mother and father taught me was how I didn't want to be as a parent. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to think, I mean, thankfully, my kids are, you know, healthy and they don't have any issues with food. You know, look, I'm sure I'm going to send them to therapy for some reason or another, but it won't be for them not knowing how loved they are and how special they are and how important that they are, you know, to me and my husband. Yeah. So, and also too, just as an inspiration to my children that, you know, writing the book, you know, I did that later in life as well and starting a business and helping people like this is what life's about. Helping people really just doesn't get better than that. And I think I have some quote, I can't remember, I can't remember who it is right now because I'm not in the same room, but it says something like the finding your purpose in life and the meaning of your life is to give it away. Like find your purpose and giving it away. That's the meaning of life. And that just really resonated with me. And I like to think I'm trying to do that the best that I can with the eating disorder recovery. Mm, yeah, they're wonderful to hear. And what a great quote. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, I, I just mangled it. But you know, you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Ronnie, where can people find you if they want to just find out more about you or make contact about coaching and all of that? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's really easy. Just it's just my name. My website is my name, RonnieRobinson.com. The name of my ED recovery coaching is called Recover with Ronnie. Yeah. So that'll be my website. My Instagram name is this name of the business recover with at recover with Ronnie. So yeah, I try to not get too cutesy there with names. It's pretty straightforward with my first and last name. Yeah, no, lovely. Well, I'll make sure I put all of those contacts in the show notes. I'm sure some people will want to to get in touch with you. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. Well, I'd just like to really thank you, Ronnie, for coming on the podcast today and for sharing your story. Because I think, you know, it's just great to hear and so inspiring to hear how far you've come because you really were in the depths of the trenches for a very long time, weren't you? And, you know, (laughs) you have truly kind of come out the other side. I think it's just so encouraging and inspiring for people to hear because I know there's many people listening who are really struggling and yeah, it's just, you know, wonderful when we can like hear stories of recovery and hope and inspiration. So thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And just yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Do go and check out all of Ronnie's info in the show notes. If you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at the eating disorder therapist underscore. And for further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk. Just to let you know, if you're looking for individual therapy, I do have quite a long waiting list at the moment. So just to bear that in mind before you reach out. I do have an online course though, 10 Steps Towards Intuitive Eating. This is a great introduction. If you are struggling with disordered eating, you really want to heal your relationship with food and body image, and you want to get a taster of what it's really like to work with me. It's made up of lectures and video content and it gives such a good insight into the way I work in the therapy room and I've currently got 50% off that course so if you go to the eating disorder therapist.co.uk you can find out more about this 
Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoy this podcast, I would be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helps it reach so many more listeners. Thanks again for listening. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.